0: Dialogue, Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg leaves a vacancy on the Supreme Court that the Trump administration hopes to fill quickly. Judge Amy Coney Barrett is the president's nominee to replace Justice Ginsburg, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the confirmation hearings will start on October 12th. This week on Dialogue, Minnesota, a look at the legacy of Justice Ginsburg and the future of the Supreme Court. We're joined by Timothy Johnson, the Morse Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota, who is an expert on the Supreme Court. Professor Johnson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota.
1: It's always good to be with you, Jim. I appreciate you having me.
0: Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the Supreme Court. Why has Ruth Bader Ginsburg become the court's feminist icon and a symbol for gender equality?
1: You know, I think it's because Justice O'Connor was put on the bench by President Reagan. And so she was always seen as much more conservative, which meant that she didn't get that icon status, even though she had the status of being the first woman on the bench. And that really did move forward equal rights for um, women in the United States. And the icon status that comes to Justice Ginsburg then is uh, because she was put on the bench by a democratic president, uh, President Bill Clinton, right, in 1993. Um, And she really, began her career fighting for the rights of women and equal justice under the law for both genders. And she carried that idea um and those ideals forward with her um onto the bench and whether it was in dissent or writing majority opinions she always fought for equal rights and remember she her quotes are that she was never fighting for the rights of women she was fighting for the equal rights of both genders and so she really didn't believe that it was a feminist issue and i think that resonated um with the women's rights movement as well because she really was there saying we are equals and we simply should be treated as such
0: what was the relationship like between Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a book that's been out for a few years now called uh, Sisters in Law, right? A really nice play on on that phrase, or I guess an interesting turn of words, if you will. And they had a very close relationship, right? Because they were on the court together with one another and O'Connor had been on the court for 12 years as the sole woman. And so to have a second woman on the bench, that really meant something to her that they had a relationship where they could talk to one another in ways that they might not have been able to talk with their male colleagues. Now, does that mean that they agreed on all things judicial? Absolutely not. Right. They had very different approaches to the law um, in, in terms of, Um, O'Connor being much more conservative, and I don't mean just ideologically, but she very much was a believer in deciding cases very narrowly, Um, whereas Justice Ginsburg very much believed in more of a concept of the living Constitution and really moving um, what we see in the 14th Amendment to the rights of women, um, as well as to um, the rights of ethnic and racial minorities, as well as to other minority groups in the United States. So while they disagreed on the law, they got together fabulously because they were sort of there quite I wouldn't say literally, but quite figuratively, as sisters who could rely on one another when the other seven were brethren themselves.
0: For a period of time after Justice O'Connor retired, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the lone woman justice on the court. Did this influence the type of justice that she became?
1: I think absolutely. I think in those years from 05 to 09, right? So it's only really four terms. um, She was the sole voice, if you will, for the jurisprudential view that she forwarded. Um, She was considered the most liberal justice on the bench, um, which is probably accurate at that point, um, slightly more liberal uh, than Justice Breyer. Um, And I think it really allowed her to hone her skills, not only of, Creating coalition, a majority coalitions, but also really having a strong voice um, when it came to having to write dissents um, when there were cases that went against what she thought were the ideals of um, equal protection under the law and the ideals of the United States and civil liberties and civil rights more generally. So it really did give her a time um, to have her own voice and really stick out, if you will, or stand out.
0: You started a research program at the U called The View from Behind the Curtain, establishing a database of Supreme Court conference note transcriptions. From studying the court's notes, what did you learn about Justice Ginsburg? Did anything surprising jump out at you?
1: You know, I'll say the most surprising thing probably was not a surprise at all, and that was that she was simply treated as one of the other justices on the bench, much the same way that Justice O'Connor was treated when she joined in 1981. I mean, I think there were a lot of critics at the time that wondered how she would deal with um joining what was known prior to 1981 as the brethren right and uh, now that's sort of anathema to use that term anymore because it really refers to a group of men um although ginsburg has actually used that phrase and she talks about her brethren on the or she talked about her brethren on the court from time to time um and i really think that we found that just her being treated the exact same way. There were no additional notes that said, boy, she doesn't know what she's talking about because she's a woman or anything to that extent. The other interesting thing that we did find was in the notes that Harry Blackman kept um, uh, during oral argument where he would uh, try to look at the quality of arguments attorneys uh, presented at the bench, Justice Ginsburg actually did very well when it came to the grades that she earned from Justice Blackmun. Um, and he while he didn't have grade inflation, um, his his mean grades were sort of around a B minus. She was always in that B to B plus mark in his grade book, if you will. And so he always thought that she gave very good quality arguments. And that is was a difficult feat for a woman who began arguing cases in 1972 at the court when it was still not a very popular thing for women to actually appear at the court to argue on their client's behalf.
0: When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated to the court by President Bill Clinton, She did not get the full support from some women's groups in Washington because of comments she had made about Roe versus Wade. What were her views on this divisive case?
1: Right. It's so interesting. And my students sort of um, are really um, taken aback when I tell them why this is the case. And the case is that she simply argued and believed, and I think believed until the day she died, um, that Roe was not uh, decided properly. And that doesn't mean that she didn't believe in the right to women to choose abortion on demand or to more generally have the right over their own reproductive health. What she meant was she thought that Roe was decided on such tenuous grounds, that is the right to privacy, that it couldn't stand up, even though it has stood the test of time, at least so far through 2020. She says, look, the right to privacy doesn't e- exist in words in the Constitution. And so when Roe was decided, it had it to be based on this uh, right to privacy that was found in Griswold versus Connecticut, six to seven years prior to Roe where the right was, deci- right was grounded in this idea of the penumbras of law or the gray areas of law, mainly in the Ninth Amendment, but also found in the First, the Third, the Fourth, and the Fifth Amendment, then right to due process. And she said, that is such shaky ground because you can knock down any of those arguments. The argument for her should have been that Roe should have been decided as an equal protection argument, that if you and I as men, Jim, have the right to control our own bodies, in particular in medical situations, then a woman should have the right to control her own body in medical situations and quite certainly pregnancy and a decision to abort a fetus is a medical decision and so she very much would have preferred that it was decided on equal protection grounds and i think it was that that first part that i said in in answer to this question where she criticized roe that
0: upset some women's groups how did ruth bader ginsburg become the popular culture figure the notorious rbg
1: You know, I think that's going to be a mystery and the black box will probably never be fully open about what led to that. But I think it probably begins not only back at her time as, you know, the documentary that's been done and the, the Hollywood movie that's been done about her that depict how she was Um, as a law student, as well as how she was as a lawyer once she was able to finally procure a job as a lawyer, how she was fighting for women's rights as an advocate, but then getting on the bench and really being that first woman's voice for women's rights. Now, let me be very clear, when Justice O'Connor got on the bench in 1981, there is very clear statistical evidence that almost all of the men on the court moved left, even if it was only to a little degree, a small degree on issues like women's rights. Even Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was incredibly conservative, you could see some movement for him in women's rights cases. Ginsburg, in comparison, is the first justice on the bench as a woman who has that liberal point of view, who fought for women's rights before she got on the bench and continued to fight for them. And then once she got on the bench, and then you get Bush versus Gore in 2000, right, she writes in dissent, A long, really harsh critique of what the court did in Bush versus Gore with a rationale. And then at the end, writes, I dissent instead of I respectfully dissent. And that sort of set her off as okay, this is someone who's going to tell it like it is. And she's going to not pull any punches when she believes that the court has made a wrong decision. And then one last uh, uh, point on this, Jim, and that is she never shied away from reading dissents from the bench. And while she was very small in stature, she was very large in voice, and you could very much understand when she was incredibly upset about decisions the court would make, and she would make that known publicly. And I think all of that sort of led to the idea that she would be that icon, and it certainly helped that she spent four years as the only woman on the bench. All of that combined leads to the notorious RBG.
0: Do you think Justice Ginsburg had an influence on the other two female justices on the court, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor?
1: Hands down, 100%. This will probably be my shortest answer to you. And you know from past interviews, Jim, I don't give short answers. But very clearly, I believe that justices Kagan and Sotomayor, um, and in fact, I don't just believe, we have evidence of this, that they you know, would go to Justice Ginsburg for advice, um, that they would take cues from her on how to decide cases, how to, to craft arguments, how to write opinions, And it is very well known um, that perhaps the most conservative justice on the court at the time, Justice Antonin Scalia, lobbied hard for Justice Elena Kagan to be the next justice on the bench because he knew how smart she was. And she is today largely considered perhaps the, the, the most or the smartest justice on the bench, or the second most if you compare her with Chief Justice Roberts. And so you could say, well, you know, look, we've got this person who's coming on with with incredible intellect, who spent time as the dean of Harvard Law School, who was a solicitor general herself. Why would she be taking advice from Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Well, because Ginsburg had been there. She knew the ropes. She knew how the game was played. And she also had the same ideological point of view. So even though there was this relationship between O'Connor and Ginsburg early on, there was always sort of a divide in terms of how they viewed the court and viewed the law, there was a much more natural symbiosis, if you will, between Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg that allowed her to mentor the two of them.
0: Let's talk about President Trump's nomination for Ginsburg's seat. Amy Coney Barrett is in many ways uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ideological opposite. Can you explain the major differences on how the two judges approach the law and why their divergent approaches are significant?
1: Sure one only need to look at the relationship legally between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, right? Justice Scalia, as with uh, potentially Justice Coney Barrett, um, are textualists. That is, they read the text of the Constitution or they read the text of the statute passed by Congress, they compare it to the facts of the case, and they decide. They do not interpret anything, they don't believe the court should be making the law, the court should only be finding the law, whereas Justice Ginsburg very clearly falls in the line of past justices, think Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan and Earl Warren, and you think the Warren Court more generally, and even though it was ideologically liberal, this isn't necessarily an ideologically liberal argument, but But uh, Ginsburg falls into that same line that says we do have the ability under our power of judicial review to interpret what the law is and interpret whether it's constitutional or not. And you do not need to just stick to the text of the Constitution or a particular statute in order to decide a case. And that often leads to quite disparate outcomes, but not always. But they absolutely are diametrically opposed in terms of how they view how the court should work.
0: President Trump and Senate leadership are promising to move Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation process forward quickly. Tell us about that process.
1: Yeah. So this will will be in some sense a normal process in terms of the nominee is named. She goes and meets with senators, although it turns out she's probably right now only meeting with Republican senators because many of the Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee are unwilling to meet with her in these informal meetings. And those informal meetings are meant largely to just get to know one another, see whether or not what you saw in the press is really who the person is. And then the Judiciary Committee will hold hearings. Uh, and then there will be a vote in the Judiciary Committee, and ultimately a vote by the entire Senate after debate. Uh, the entire Senate. It, in that sense, it's going to look exactly like any other confirmation process, except that it is going to go at warp speed. And if Senator Graham, who is the current chair of the Judiciary Committee, has his way, uh, here I believe it's um, on the the 12th of October, they will begin those confirmation hearings. The problem that Senator Graham has right now is that there are three Republicans who are out with COVID um, and are on quarantine for ten to 14 days, and there may be others as well. And it will be unclear if the COVID crisis that is now sweeping its way through many of the folks who were at the announcement of Judge Coney Barrett to um, her nomination to the, the Supreme Court, how many Republican senators may end up being out for some time to come. And so the one glitch in this process going just at warp speed, but as normal, is that there might not be the votes there to get her confirmed prior to the election. But if that's the case, she will absolutely
0: be confirmed after the election. What, if anything, can the Democrats who are in the minority in the Senate do to slow down the process? Nothing. I mean,
1: quite literally nothing, right? To have a quorum in in the Senate, you only need to have 50 percent of the justices there or of of the senators there. I apologize. And Uh, quite certainly uh, with with the Republicans holding the majority, they can get a quorum. And so they can have a vote taken whether or not the Democrats even show up. The Democrats have no ability to filibuster. That process was taken away um, during the Justice uh, Gorsuch uh, confirmation debate. And so they can't stop this. And even if... Uh, President Trump loses. And even if the Democrats take over the Senate, they won't do so till January. And so this could very well and probably will end up being a lame duck confirmation vote if both of those things happen. And she will be the next justice on the Supreme Court.
0: Chief Justice Roberts has been viewed as moving to the center in order to try and balance the court. He has expressed concern in the past over the public's opinion that the court is biased. Do you think his political and judicial thinking has actually changed? In other words, is Roberts more conservative than some of his recent votes suggest? And will he have an incentive to stay in the middle of the court if the potential new Justice Barrett pushes it farther to the right?
1: Yeah, so I don't think that the Chief Justice has become any more liberal. He is as conservative today as he was Uh, when he was nominated to the court in 2005, as he was when he worked for the Reagan administration, when he worked in the solicitor general's office. He is a very ideologically conservative justice, but he is in a position as chief justice where he has to care about more than just ideology or outcomes in particular cases. He cares and really is sort of the holder, if you will, of the court's legitimacy. And this is why you saw him in the tax cases involving the president Um, in several other cases, or at the end of last term, in several other cases, cases, including the Obamacare case in 2012, siding with the liberal minority justices because he wanted to, as you said, really think about how the court comes off as biased to the public. Now, he has less incentive to do that on one hand, once there's a six to three conservative to liberal majority, because he now has the votes to really do whatever he wants. On the other hand, he has more of an incentive to move over with the three liberal justices to really make it clear that you can cross ideological lines, not party lines, because there's no partisanship at the court, but ideological lines. But... Practically, it really doesn't matter because even if he does jump over in in a high number of salient cases, it's still only four votes. And so he would need to pull along another justice with him. And the two who are probably most likely to do so would be the other two newest justices on the bench, Justice Gorsuch and or Justice Kavanaugh. So you're going to see a lot of six, three votes, but you're going to see some five, four votes that will go in the the liberal direction um, uh, as the terms go on. And as this term begins, as it does on this first Monday in October.
0: With the unprecedented number of mail-in votes this election, many legal experts expect to see court challenges to the voting process. Some think the Supreme Court may once again decide the election. Let's look back at the 2000 decision in Bush v. Gore. What were the legal arguments in that case and why did the court decide to stop Florida's recount?
1: Yeah, so the legal arguments in that, in that case were all about Um, how the recount was done in different counties in Florida. What is interesting about Bush v. Gore is Vice President Gore was not asking for a recount in the entire state. He was asking for a recount in specific counties, counties where he thought there were Gore votes that weren't counted, what were known as undercounts at that time. Those were those hanging chads or the pregnant chads where someone couldn't fully get that stylus through that butterfly ballot. And that was perfectly legitimate. Florida law allowed for a candidate, if the race was as close as it was, right, under about one and a half or 2% between the two candidates, to ask for a recount in specific counties. The problem arose when each of the counties ended up having different recount procedures. And the argument that the Bush campaign made was, that's an equal protection violation. Now, initially, the Florida Supreme Court says, no, we're gonna allow this recount to happen. This is what the law says, the recount goes on. The Supreme Court initially took the Bush case and sent it back to the Florida Supreme Court and said, you need to give us better explanation. The Florida Supreme Court ended up basically saying, we gave you as good an explanation as we can. The Supreme Court took it back up in Bush versus Gore, decides the case that it is an equal protection violation, have different people's votes counted differently. Now, the irony of this case with Bush winning is the five who voted in favor of lock, stock, and barrel stopping the recount were the five justices who were the strongest perhaps in the history of the US Supreme Court on believing in states' rights and leaving state decisions by state courts based on state law to the states and that they would not involve themselves. They got involved probably for ideological reasons and decided the case in favor of soon to be President Bush. Ultimately, it probably didn't matter because economists, political scientists, sociologists, statisticians all ended up in Florida after um, Bush versus Gore. And they all found that Bush ultimately won Florida anyway, even if only by a few hundred or a few thousand votes. But that is what happened in that case. And maybe it will set up something for 2020, although I don't believe it's likely.
0: Was the decision in Bush versus Gore a narrow one? In other words, did it only provide a decision for that particular election, or did the case set a precedent for how other voting and recount cases should be decided?
1: And this is why fundamentally i don't believe there will be a case all the way to the supreme court in this election and that is you read between the lines and somewhat not even in between the lines but read the lines themselves and the court says this is an incredibly narrow decision exactly in your words jim it is based only on the facts of this case and for the love of anything that is holy, please know that we will never use this case as precedent, and we will never try to take another uh, election case again if we can help it. And you will note within about a year and a half, there was a case that came out of California where there was the the recount election um, for and I will never remember his name, former governor of California now, and the court refused to take that case. It basically said, we're wiping our hands clean of these cases, um, or these types of cases. Now, does that mean that they wouldn't for sure take a case in 2020? No, it's possible, but given that the decision about whether ballots are valid or not is made at the local level, and every state makes those decisions, in fact, every precinct makes those decisions. And given that the constitution gives the states that power to determine whether votes are valid or not, this court probably keeps its hands out of the process. And I think that that the chief justice will do everything in his power to, to keep that from happening.
0: So if there is a Biden versus Trump case that goes to the court, do you think Roberts will have any inclination to take it? No, I think that he will try to fight it. But
1: remember, in order for the court to take a case, It only needs four votes at the agenda setting process and if in fact there's question as to whether or not uh, president trump has won there are four conservative votes to take that case Um, and so it's possible that he can't stop it but i can see given his his position of trying to protect the legitimacy of the court, especially in a time where the trust in the executive branch and the trust in the legislative branch are even more at all time lows than they have ever been, I think that he can maybe make a persuasive argument to his colleagues to stay out of this and allow the decisions to be made on a state by state basis. But time will tell, right? I think there's going to be a lot of litigation. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that there's one thing that stops that litigation and stops a Biden versus Trump or Trump versus Biden case. And that is if there is a landslide, if it is a landslide victory, um, in the electoral college, then there really is no room for, uh, lawsuits, um, because the election results would be so clear. This is only going to happen if it is incredibly close.
0: There has been some discussion about imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices who currently enjoy a lifetime appointment. Do you think that is likely to happen?
1: No, I don't virtually impossible, because the only thing uh, to make that happen or to put term limits on members of Congress is to pass a constitutional amendment. And and I heard someone on NPR the other day uh, say that given the number of amendments we have, we have an amendment about every decade. Right. If you we have 27 amendments, um, we've been in existence for just under 250 years. That's roughly about one every decade. But we haven't had any play with amendments for a very long time, um, except for the 27th amendment, which was the lost amendment and was ratified. Um, very quickly at the end, having to do with pay for members of Congress. But almost all of the play with amendments happens in the 1800s and has not happened much since then, um, except for early in the 20th century. It is a difficult process. Um, It opens up whole cans of worms and it is not easy to do. And so my short answer, probably won't happen.
0: There has also been talk among some Democrats in Congress about increasing the number of Supreme Court justices. There are currently, of course, nine justices on the court, but the Constitution does not set a specific number of justices. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt attempted what his critics called a court packing scheme in 1937. The high court's conservative majority had struck down some of FDR's New Deal programs, and he sought to add justices who would deliver more favorable rulings. Why did this effort fail and what does it tell us about the prospects for something similar happening if the Democrats win the presidency and gain a majority in the Senate while maintaining their House majority?
1: Yeah, so it's not that the court packing plan failed, although I think it was probably headed towards failure, even though there was a large Democratic majority in both houses of Congress. And clearly the nation was on on FDR's side because he had won by such a sweeping landslide in 1936, Public opinion polls taken show that people were largely, largely against this court packing plan because they really thought that it was um, changing the rules of the game or breaking the rules of the game, if you will. And then members of Congress really were against it. The reason that it ended but didn't fail is that in a 1937 case, West Coast Hotel versus Parish, the fifth vote, Justice Owen Roberts, who went along with the really hardcore Four member uh, conservative coalition, um, as the fifth vote on striking down all of these New Deal cases, flipped his vote. And it's known by historians and scholars and students uh, of, of government as the switch in time that saved nine. Robert switched. That opened the floodgates for almost all of the rest of the New Deal legislation to be upheld by the court and FDR could back off and not have to try to push forward what ultimately was a very unpopular uh, decision that he made public in one of his fireside chats. Now bring that forward to 2020. What are the prospects the Democrats try to do this? I think relatively good that they will try. But I think that if they're going to try and be successful, they would need to do so in a very conservative, and I don't mean ideologically, but conservative way in terms of not trying to pack the court with... Four, six, eight, ten, 10, or 12 additional justices. For one, that gets unwieldy, right? The Ninth Circuit has 27 judges on it and, and no one wants 27 justices on the US Supreme Court. If the Democrats are going to do this, my guess is they would actually pack the court, if you will, with just two new justices. And what they would say is, this is a legitimate argument for us to make because you stole the nomination from us after Justice Scalia died, you never even gave Merrick Garland a hearing, and you stole the nomination after Justice Ginsburg died because everybody claimed you shouldn't have uh, a nomination during um, an election year, and that's what they, why they stopped Merrick Garland, but then they went ahead. And so here's what the argument is. We're gonna take back those two seats, it will increase the number to 11, and there is precedent for getting, we've had 10 justices on the court before in the 1800s, so we get to 11, but we also simultaneously do not change the ideological balance of the court, because there would still be six conservatives on the bench, assuming that Justice Coney Barrett gets on, and there would be five Democratically appointed or ostensibly more liberal justices. And then that would force the Chief Justice back into the median spot, and he would be the one to move back and forth as he was doing before Justice Ginsburg died. So I think that it is a possibility. And if they do so, my argument would be that's the way that they should do it with only two new justices.
0: Timothy Johnson is the Morris Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.
1: Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me.
0: Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.